Betches Media presents. If you feel depressed and if you feel anxious and you feel confused, you know what? Welcome to the club. Gaspacho police. Oh my God. What a stupid son of a bitch. He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. The Betches Sup Podcast. Sayonara, sucker. Hello, everybody. This is Amanda. In today's episode, we're going to talk about 988. That is the government's phone number to call when you are in mental distress. We're talking with Zach Williams. He is the son of Robin Williams. And this episode will include references to suicide, mental illness, mental distress, and substance abuse. If that's something that's not healthy for you to hear, you might not want to listen to this episode. And we will see you back here with the news tomorrow. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Better Stuff Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today, we are thrilled to be here with Zach Williams to talk about a new project, the podcast Call for Help. This series, hosted by Stephanie Whittles-Wax from Lemonada Media, examines the promise and perils of the new 988 hotline while also looking at roots and solutions for America's mental health crisis. Thank you for joining us. Um, congratulations. It premiered today. I, I assume this has been uh, quite a big, a big effortful project for you. So it must be so cool to see it out in the world. Yeah, thank you. Um, first off, it's great to be on. Secondly, today is the day uh, we launch. Um 988 as a program mm-hmm. launched in July, and it's been received really well. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's some kinks and things to work mm-hmm. through, but for the most part, I would say it's it's met expectations. And I mean, I came into it with a bias, mm-hmm. essentially around you know populations and communities needing more mental health support mm-hmm. systems. But that said. I became increasingly more impressed with the effort and resources that went into training the people and also, you know, establishing the right implementation to get people the support they need. Yeah, exactly. And before we go into the details on that first, could you tell us about your specific role on the podcast? Because it is really cool and unique and specific um, in terms of what your role is there. Uh, Sure. Yeah, I came in as a a correspondent, uh, also supported producing the series. Uh, Specifically, my role involved interviewing uh, people involved with with the rollout, also advocates and activists within the space whom uh, have specific perspectives and opinions on how one would go about rolling out such a thing and also the challenges and risks associated with it. So, you know, my specific role is as a special correspondent, um, also highlight some calls to action. And um, the lens that I have around this is we're under-resourced as a nation, and we need to get the right information with the right resources and material to people so that they know how to call, who to call, where to reach out to, to get the appropriate navigated support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And when did you personally become an advocate for mental health? I personally became an advocate about six and a half years ago after my dad, who was the entertainer, Robin Williams, died by suicide, was not having a great time of things, uh, was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, generalized anxiety disorder and, and depression, and um, found myself doing unhealthy things like self-medicating, using alcohol to manage my mental health struggles. And So uh, as part of that, I realized something needed to change. And I discovered 
mental health advocacy is being really helpful for the underlying issues relating to my well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, so through that journey, I started working with not-for-profits, started initially with an organization called Bring Change to Mind, but ended up working with several organizations that I'm affiliated with, whether in a board director capacity or advisory capacity mm-hmm. or supporting around fundraising. And, you know, at this point I speak dozens of times every year around the world uh, about things like mental hygiene, things like systems-based mental health advocacy. I'm very passionate about neurotransmitter health, also brain health and cognition, mm-hmm. all of these things combined to ultimately be my path to healing. Mm-hmm. As I was listening to kind of the first episode and you talked about, you know, your personal experiences with mental health, I couldn't help but wonder if you would recommend to somebody who has experienced grief and mental health challenges to submerge themselves in the topic of grief and mental health challenges. Was that, did you sort of have to set some boundaries before you pursued, you know, this process of being, being an advocate? That's a great question. I, I didn't initially set out to be an advocate. I, uh, have a background in technology, you know, went to business school, got my MBA, have been a tech exec and worked at media companies for the majority of my career. And when I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and found myself really feeling down and out and having elements of suicidal ideation and uh, all sorts of other mental health dysregulations, I I had to apply a forcing function. So for me, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the right path for people to go into diving into things head first. I just needed things to change if I wanted to take control of my own destiny. And so versus having you know, the dysregulation, the trauma lead me down a path of self-destruction and unhappiness. And so, you know, for people, I would say, have the opportunity to find the stable foundation, find Mm -hmm. clarity, find healing, and then decide whatever it is that may work for you. For me, it just so happens that this is my chosen path and I'll continue focusing on these type of things for the rest of my life. So, Zach, what are the promises and perils of 988 really broadly? I mean, what happens when someone calls this number right now and how can that potentially, you know, what directions can that go in? So if someone were to call this number, they would be connected with a with a regional representative. I say regional because ideally the goal would be in the same state, potentially is same city or county. Um, who can in turn navigate you to the person with the appropriate experience. Ideally, when Congressman Seth Moulton set out to create this initiative, his way of framing it was, if you're a veteran and you're experiencing issues, the goal is to connect you with a veteran. Someone with similar lived experiences, better context around what you're going through. So, You're connected with someone, that person has training and an understanding of how to best 
navigate you, whether it involves in-person response with mental health professionals, whether it involves connecting you with more resources, more pointed resources, whether it's a substance use issue, whether it's, you know, psychosis, Mm -hmm. uh, psychotic break, something along those lines, or whether it would need to be kind of navigated to more, you know, community care orientation. And so you connect with this individual, they develop an understanding of what does this person need to be stabilized? Do they need to be you know, guided towards suicide ideation support resources, or is it something more along the lines of, hey, this person needs to be connected with someone who can in turn, you know, de-escalate a situation because they're potentially, you know, at risk of harming others or like, and and so um, the good thing is, is that, it's meant to be compassionate and empathic and the designation around the development of this resource is based upon navigating people towards the care that they need, not navigating them towards a law enforcement response. So is that a change I assume from previously, that's the change from previous options that people had to seek emergency help. That is the change is that they, they have maybe a little bit more assurance that the first option isn't a police car outside of their house, because it sounds like you did speak to people on the episode on the first episode who had had that experience and it ended up not being helpful. So it sounds like this hotline, is it designed to sort of avoid that happening as often or to approach that differently? What problem does it solve? The goal specifically about the hotline is to have that response happen next to never. Um, right. It's in the, in the, in the law enforcement specific situation. I mean, the previous government sponsored solution was nine one one. Right. And I mean, of course there, there's a suicide lifeline. Nine eight eight is meant to function as a suicide lifeline as well, but you know, when you're dialing 911, the first orientation is around, especially for mental health response, is law enforcement response. When you dial 988, that's a last resort. Mm-hmm. And you will be informed, mm-hmm. right? You will have the respondent say, I would like to transfer you to 911. Right. Got you it. know, Got so. It. So it's not, that's not the orientation. That's not the perspective. They, there's not kind of access to law enforcement response outside of a transfer. So, Mm -hmm. um, so the other thing too, is that there's no geotagging associated with this, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you can be connected with the appropriate area, but it's a, it's a, rough area. It's not like we have your location. We're coming to you. You know, there is a crisis component, but ideally the goal would be to establish more of, you know, the moderate support mechanisms, but, but, you know, you're dealing with stigma. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with situations where people might have historically been in situations where they are dealt with, dealt with, with bias and, you know, often the response, especially when it came to a law enforcement response for mental health emergencies, is extreme. Mm-hmm. 
right? And so a large part of it is breaking down the stigma associated with prior experience with these other resources. Yes, right. No, absolutely. I mean, if the goal is to stay alive, very sadly in this country, there are populations where unfortunately calling law enforcement does not does not always mean that things will will de-escalate. I know a challenge I've had with our audience, because our audience has asked for more information on 988, um, is that, because I have heard some experts flag issues, but I've just been so nervous about discourage anyone from using this hotline. That seems very wrong. So I'm wondering how, and it, clearly that's not what, what the show is doing, but I am curious how you and Stephanie thought about that balance as you made the show. How will listeners kind of experience, is there any tension between in the episodes? How do you kind of like, where do you, there are four episodes, I believe I listened to the first one, but you know, how would you characterize where you sort of ended up in your investigation on 988 and its current form? And as you repeat throughout the series, or at least in the first episode, um, this isn't, it's not fully finished. The rollout isn't fully finished. There are ways to kind of enhance what's going on, but where did you land and how do you feel about where you landed? Oh boy. Um, where we landed was that we're just getting started. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm very big on the idea contextual care with the idea that if you engage within a service, whether it be 988 or, you know, a civic sponsored or, you know, not-for-profit sponsored service or what have you, the goal would be to connect with someone who has the most context and training around your specific needs, right? And the resourcing for version one of 988 is about 300 million. Right. And if you break that down to what that looks like in the scope of funding, it's less than one dollar per American. Yeah, it's like a button on an army uniform. basically. Uh, yeah, essentially. Right. And so that's just getting started. Start. Right. We, we need more resources to establish more comprehensive solutions, whether they be government created or you know, government funded for not-for-profits, mm. NGOs, you know, potentially other types of organizations. Um, where, where we see it going, this was based upon our journey, is leveraging things like emerging technology, machine learning, AI, better data environments. And, you know, you want to be very considerate of people's privacy so, you know, understanding more about how lifestyle interventions can support people in crisis, community support, understanding what it is that people are are doing in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. drug use, uh, you know, what they're eating or not eating, these type of things. And then understanding how you can how you can tune or alter behavior to better have to have better Outcomes relating to their personal mental health is awesome, but you know that that's a goal. But you want to be super considerate of how you get the data, right? And so these yes, are challenges. Absolutely. These are these are double edged situations. Mm -hmm. um, so where we landed was we're still under resourced as a nation. We need more investment in technology, more investment in understanding the data, more investment in training, because there's just not enough providers to provide the care needed, trained providers. And so, um, so I'd say yeah. we ended up at, this is a really good starting point, but how can we 
significantly, ideally exponentially increase the resources relating to care for individuals, populations, communities. I think that's what makes the podcast really unique and interesting. Um, even if you're, you didn't really know much about 988 data for whatever reason, you're not, you don't know much about mental health, but just as, as a sort of like example of how a big government project can happen and then what, you know, gaps need to be filled in and practice. It's just a, it's a really interesting kind of like look into, you know, how things are propped up and proof of concept and um, how you kind of need to deliver to get, you know, the results that you want. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are four dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits healthier hair and skin. Yes, but beyond that too. Since I started using pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great. It looks fancy on the shelf. And I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And Pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corp, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash feverdream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash feverdream. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash feverdream. We all dread the what should we have for dinner question. I mean, I know I do. I love a home-cooked meal, but I don't always have the time, energy, or groceries to make it happen. Being able to feast on a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is what drew me to Home Chef over the other guys. Home Chef's meals are effortless, so I can spend less time trying to be Top Chef and more time watching it. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready 
in less than 30 minutes. Oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes. Home Chef has you covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week and serves a variety of dietary needs, so you never have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. For a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homechef.com slash fever dream. That's homechef.com slash fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. Homechef.com slash fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. Your correspondent on this podcast, it's hosted by Stephanie Whittleswax, and her brother was the comedian Harris Whittles, who died of an overdose after battling substance use disorder. And as you mentioned, your dad is the late Robin Williams. Um, so, you you know, one can't help but notice the role of comedy in both of those individuals' lives. And did you and Stephanie discuss much personally how people who seem to have a talent for making others feel better may be more likely to experience mental health challenges? We touched upon it. For people who choose the path of, say, stand-up comedy or entertainment to be actors or other types of, you know, musicians, what have you, um, for those who choose this path, it requires exposing yourself, being vulnerable, and in the specific case of comedy, trying to highlight the ironies the truths of the world and that constant exposure, especially when you're, you're not validated over long Mm -hmm. periods of time Mm -hmm. can take a toll on people, right? You know, stand-up comedy is a brutal stand-up comedy or being a comedian for film or TV. It's a, it's, it's a brutal endeavor because it's requires constant iteration, constantly Mm -hmm. showing up and, trying to, you know, in some situations, play the jester, but also try to highlight the ugly or hilarious or or challenging truths about the world. And that's not easy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can you can achieve some success with it. But for for every 
one stand-up, mm-hmm. known stand-up comedian, there's 50 or more who mm-hmm. might never make it, right? And so, you know, that's that's a brutal journey. Yeah. As you were talking, I just, I was just thinking about how so much of our lives, even if you never put yourself out there to be an entertainer is externalized now. And there's so many opportunities to be validated or feel like you weren't validated, which is obviously a challenge for everybody. As I was listening, you know, you can really sense your frustration just with how this country addresses mental health overall, our lack of kind of upstream interventions. I'm really curious, what is your dream for how this nation addresses its citizens' mental health? What's a dream scenario? Are there any countries you think do it right? So, uh, so I'm going to be a little bit dogmatic. Hi, this guy. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a, a really good stat to help understand where a country is at in terms of appropriately resourcing mental health support solutions is expenditure of medical GDP for mental health services. Okay. In the United States... We're at about two and a half percent expenditure of medical GDP of total GDP. Medical GDP is in the trillions and the two and a half percent for mental health um, is not anywhere close to where we need to be. In the first world. So in the developed world, um, the number of medical GDP expenditure or the ratio of medical GDP expenditure for mental health needs to be around 15%. Wow. Right. And so, so to provide full comprehensive coverage Mm -hmm. and in certain areas, I'll call out, say, you know, Australia, New Zealand are two great examples you're in the seven to ten percent range. Australia is more in the seven percent range. To my understanding, New Zealand's kind of edging more towards ten percent. And you know, in the, in, in the developing world, uh, it can it can be you know more in the one percent or less than one percent range. There are some specific challenges like communicable diseases, mm-hmm. malaria you know, access to clean water, things like that, that require more investment. And one could make the argument in medical GDP expenditure in the developing world needs to be for mental health needs to be more in like the 10% range because there's mm-hmm. that need for, you know, giving people core nutrition and, and, and the like, although right. I could make the argument that most Americans are getting the nutrition they need. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. So, so I would say that, key stat from where we're at two and a half percent to 15% that that difference is Mm -hmm. not insignificant. Um, No, but that requires a systems based approach. It shouldn't be necessarily, you know, governments that take up the brunt of that. It should be a mix of community organizations, not for profits, uh, to some respect, the private sector combined with the public sector, civic organizations, state organizations, family units, you know, but to put the onus on just families or just, yeah, you know, yeah. civic organizations, that's challenging. 
Do you think the stigma contributes to our kind of cultural inability to kind of like divide that responsibility among all of those fields? It's sort of like, oh, you're having a mental health problem. You go to the, hopefully they'll go to the doctor rather than, you know, people, maybe they don't feel like they have like a church that they want to go to or they don't feel comfortable going to sort of like a family. So are there kind of like other kind of, you know, housing in this country is a nightmare. I'm sure, you know, you look, you've investigated a lot of other factors that are not just related to like how a person feels in their brain that day, but their lifestyle factors, their economic status. Oh yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of stigma associated with mental health, but, it, but it's on both sides. It's on the provider side too. Um, right. With psychiatric associations, right. You know, there's a bias towards in many situations, pharmaceuticals and the like, I don't hold issues with pharmaceuticals. I think they're extremely valuable for many people, but where you see challenges start to crop up is when it's the only solution for people. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and suddenly, you know, you, you, you find Ben, you know, the toolkit for someone in mental health dysregulation are benzodiazepam, you know, uh, SSRIs, SNRIs and antipsychotics like Seroquel. Like that's the toolkit for people. And all of those medicines are valuable in, in certain contexts, right? Where it becomes challenging is when that's the only solution provided for people. It's not, you know, extended to the community care model. It's not extended mm-hmm. to finding other solutions like, Nutrition, fitness, mindfulness, meditation, community support, therapy, self-improvement, breath work, all these different things that, you know, when applied in a preventative way can be really supportive for people where they might not need to be in a situation where a pharmaceutical is their only solution, right? And so, mm-hmm. so the stigma, you know, there's that stigma. And then on the, of course, on the, you know, on the patient or on the, on the individual side of things, yeah, there's stigma of not seeking care because there's worry about being judged. There's a lot of stigma around chronic mental health conditions, around bipolar, around schizophrenia. People are very concerned. Families are very concerned. Will we be judged if we go out and acknowledge a family member is experiencing mm-hmm these situations. And so, you know, a lot, a lot, this happens both in the U S and all throughout the world. Um, it's actually can be a human rights issue in terms Mm -hmm. of the stigma can be so bad where individuals experiencing chronic mental health conditions are shackled. Mm -hmm. Wow. Right. And, and, and this happens in the U S it happens all throughout the world. Um, but Sometimes we don't seek care or we don't support, you know, other people seeking care because they're, you know, we're worried we're going to be judged as a result of that. Um, As an extension of that relative to substance use disorders, relative to addiction, there's all sorts of stigma associated with that. What what we saw data wise in terms of the not-for-profits I work with, uh, and you're seeing it also in terms of government organizations like SAMHSA, which which developed 988, sharing 
specific data around it. We're seeing an uptick in substance use. There's a lot of reasons for that. There's the opioid epidemic, which involves, you know, very addictive substances being much more freely distributed. Um, There's extended isolation for people through the pandemic, meaning people are self-medicating through that. And, um, and there's all sorts of other, other elements that are cropping up societal factors, technology, uh, enabling more distribution of, of all sorts of different, uh, substances, whether they be pharmaceutical or otherwise. Um, yeah. And as a direct result of that, the stigma that's cropping up is, you know, people are starting to develop an understanding of what it means to seek care. What's the, yeah. what's the boundary, right? When does one need to seek care? When does one not need to seek care? Because there's new, you know, there's a growth in the number of people who are self-medicating for all these, for all these different reasons. And right. so, so there's that. And then also, I think a lot of some people are anticipating a reversion to some sort of pre-pandemic situation, Mm -hmm. some pre-pandemic numbers around substance use, mental health dysregulation. Got it. What we're seeing is that's 100% not the case. It's kind of been consistent. Mm -hmm. And so that's alarming in a bunch of different ways, but it's also endemic to the stigma and, you know, the, the values of how we're viewing or opening up to mental health considerations, opening up to our own issues. There might've been a lot of hidden usage, hidden dysregulation that in terms of, you know, what's been happening culturally is now coming to light because the stigma is reduced. So yeah, there's a lot at play. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you talk about how that stigma even, you know, factors in for you. And when you decide to seek care, uh, I really encourage our listeners to check it out. It's a really incredible podcast. Like I said, you're exploring a lot of, um, different like dilemmas and approaching them in really good faith and looking for solutions. Um, so if this is a topic that you're interested in and can, can listen to some information about, I really encourage you to check out the podcast. It is called call for help from lemonade Amina. Thank you so much, Zach. Where else can people find what you're doing? Uh, well, uh, I'm very passionate about neurotransmitter health. <laughs> My company, PIM.com, focuses on nutrition for mental well-being. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that's that's something that I am very focused on. I, I'm the CEO of that company. Also, I work with several not-for-profits that I lo- would love to share. Bring Change to Mind is focused on developing programs and resources for kids in high schools throughout the United States. That was started by the actor Glenn Close. I work with an organization called Inseparable, which is a 501c4 focused on developing pragmatic policy for increased access, parity, and equity of care. And uh, I work with an organization called Project Healthy Minds, which is developing tech resources to better improve access to care uh, through through you know establishing uh, basically a marketplace for people to to engage with um, tech solutions and apps. 
The final organization I work with closely is United for Global Mental Health, which is a global uh, NGO focused specifically on educating uh, policymakers on the world stage around mental health needs and ideally developing programs and curricula to support nations throughout the world. A lot of needs in the space, so I'm, I'm happy somebody is has, <laughs> has their hands in all of it. Thank you so much, Zach. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. It was a joy to be on. Thank you. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Sub Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and send us your emails to suppod at Betches.com. Betches.